Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 13th, 2015. This is episode 1519 of the Survival Podcast. And by the way, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. There's your PSA from old Jack, guys. Don't screw it up. Anyway, uh, it's also the fact that today is what? Today is Friday! 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 That's right. Uh, time for your calls to the Think Line 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. The number's there if you don't have letters on your, uh, your keypad for whatever reason, 866-658-4465. You call that, you're not going to hear, hey, caller, this is Jack, what do you got to say? Because this is a podcast, it's not live. Uh, but will you get us a voice message service, leave me your question or make your point, make your comment you want me to respond to. You get about two minutes to do that. Let me advise you to uh, ask your question or make your point specifically immediately and then give the details. It'll go better, I promise you. Um, I just I do it for a living, guys, and I screen the calls. And I, I hear it all the time where people start off with details and get frustrated, hang the phone up, call back, start off with details, get frustrated, hang the phone up. Call back, ask the question, give the details, go smoothly. Just saying. Also, call from a quiet location. That way there won't be any static noise, etc. Like, I got a call from somebody in uh, Tennessee or Kentucky. I think it was about teenagers and prepping or something like that. And it sounded like you were in a basement uh, from across the room. And there's that's probably not your fault. There's no way to know that there was a bad connection. But that's why if there's a bad connection, you won't know. So try to make sure you got a good connection quiet area, most likely to get on the air. Remember, I can't get all the calls on the air. I think 30-40% roughly get on the air of calls that, that you know that I, that I get in total. And uh, usually if you're not on the air within two weeks, figure that you need to call your call back in. Uh, for several months now, I've been on this kick of screening the calls on Friday and going backwards. So Wednesday, Thursday are the days that are most, or Friday morning, the days that are most likely to get you on the air. Anyway, uh, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, westernbotanicals.com. I am a big believer in herbal medications, and there's a reason, because they work for me. I don't know if they'll work for you, but they work for me. When I'm sore and I'm achy and I'm tired and I take some of the red valerian-based uh, formula that Western Botanicals has or the turmeric-based stuff, either one, it works. Depending on how I feel, I, I take the one that I think is going to work best for me, and usually either one works pretty damn good. And that means I'm not putting non-steroidal anti-inflammatories into my uh, into my body and through my kidneys and my liver, which really ain't good for you. Even the people that make them will tell you that, that they're not good to go through you very often. Uh, so that's my reasoning. And my reasoning for choosing Western Botanicals as my source is not just because they're a sponsor, but because I've never found a company that's so committed to what they do that has such real people that really care about you. You can pick up the phone and call. Uh, a small company, an individual company, run by people that you can know on a first-name basis if you want to. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, they do support the Member Support Brigade by giving their premium membership away for free. They sell that membership every day for 50 bucks a year. You get it for free as an MSB member. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. The awesome, the cool, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith will teach you to make cooking a life skill. And uh, I'll tell you what, if you've ever lived on MREs, you learn quickly that when you're in a prepping mode, 
Knowing how to cook is a good thing. And if you're going to make all, you know, grow all these interesting foods and stuff that we talk about and get local food and spend a little bit more money to know your farmer and things like that, when you put the food on the table, you want it to be great. You really do. So check out Chef Keith. Uh, he's just got some great stuff. Great YouTube channel, great podcast, great blog, and great products. He's got great seasonings. Uh, he even has a TSP Master Pack of my favorite seasonings over there. The chicken curry stuff, guys, it rocks. If you like curry, you're going to love this. And if you don't sort of kind of maybe kind of sort of like curry, you might want to give this a try. The chicken curry mix is just awesome. Anyway, uh, with that, let's uh, remind you guys real quick, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Go to the show, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more there. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, along with first responders, all qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join service discount, TSPC in the subject line. Send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I'll get back to you. With that, let's take a look at the year. There was the episode at tspwiki.com. Alex shrugged, has three on deck for us today. Follow the flagship and ask no questions. The Magellan World Tour. Cortez scuttles his ship and jumpstarts his career. Uh, and we have the need for gun safety lessons has just become apparent. That's a short one, but you might want to read it. It has the, I guess, the original um, uh, origins of uh, muzzle discipline might be the way you would describe this. But I'm going to read, follow the flagship and ask no questions, the Magellan World Tour. It is time to stick it to the King of Portugal and write paint on a debt of honor. Having heard of Balboa's discovery of another ocean, Ferdinand Magellan has been planning to circumnavigate the globe under the flag of Portugal. <clears throat> but at the last minute, because of a long-time grudge, the king refuses to back the voyage. Magellan is a 37-year-old man with his hair on fire to make the voyage. So he gets the backing from the king of Spain and launches his fleet from Seville. His ships cross the Atlantic to Rio de Janeiro and take on supplies to stay and observe the festival of Christmas, which lasts for several days. By early next year, his ships will take a shortcut through the strait that will one day bear his name, the Straits of Magellan, and enter the Pacific Ocean. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Historians would love to know what the grudge the king of Portugal had with Magellan. They must have buried the hatchet to remain in each other's company for so long, uh, but they may have, must have remembered where it was buried. Magellan had been a page for the queen, though, at, though when he was only 14, so historians can guess what that might have been about. Magellan was a fast talker because he got the king of Spain to jump all over the project. Unfortunately, Magellan is not going to make it home from his voyage. The Philippines, he will get into the middle, uh, in the Philippines, he'll get into the middle of a minor fight between native tribes and get stabbed to death in the melee. Um, my take by this is how monumentous the, the journey of Magellan around the globe was. Because for the first time, people really understood what we were talking about with the totality of the planet how big it really was, what it was really like, what the distances were really like. Um, again, the, the mythology that Christopher Columbus was the only smart guy that knew that the Earth was round is, is nonsensical. The fact that most people even would have thought that the Earth was flat and you're going to fa fall off the end of it was ridiculous. Um, there's probably actually more people today that... that, that are part of the Flat Earthers Society, which is a real thing, than people that really thought the Earth was flat when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue in 1492. Uh, just more mythology to make you think that, you know, you should listen to people that 
create information for your for your programming and your educational system is the way I look at that. Um, but what happened here is when you know you get uh, an earlier explorer Balboa say, "Hey, there's this old ocean over here. There's this big landmass in the way." And you figure out sort of kind of what these landmasses are like. And then there's this point down here way to the south where it gets really cold. And you can go through there and you sail across. And uh, it, if I remember right, it's like a remnant of his, his crew that makes it all the way back. But they do. And this is where global colonialism really begins to blow up. Because the powers that be start to understand that you, that the idea of just a shipping route to these different places in of itself is not going to work. There's going to have to be ports, and there's going to have to be exchange, and it, make, it makes a lot more sense to set up commerce, let's say, between uh, the Caribbean and the new world, the old world, so to speak, and the new world, and it makes maybe sense in the Pacific theater to set up your own group of commerce and colonies and things with the African continent and what have you, and... There's really a whole boom in global colonialism, which isn't really good for the people that already live in these places, that all starts to really accelerate itself once the totality of the picture is understood. My take by Jack Spirico. In other words, wherever government goes, it, it brings destruction and death with it. Good morning, Jake. It's D.H. from Colorado's Western Slope. I just had a thought that I wanted to share. You know, language indicates how we think about things, and vice versa, the language forms how we think about things. So we have a concept called laundered money. But there's a presupposition behind the idea of laundered money, which is that somebody else had some idea, right to know, where that money came from. Obviously, the government wants to perpetrate the idea that it should know where every dollar comes from so that it can control and regulate and tax and everything else. But do you think everybody should know where the money comes from? Do you like Bitcoin's open blockchain idea that every transaction is totally published? Or would it be better to go to what ZeroCoin wants to do and be able to obfuscate the source of money legitimately as it's common practice? Look at your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye. Well, there's no doubt that the government has a desire to track all money. And I think that, well, money laundering is one of those things that the government has a pretty loose definition of. But there's, uh, you know, a legitimate concern with the laundering of money, and then there's an illegitimate concern. So one one way that you might want to launder money is if you were to go steal it. So if you were to steal money from a bank, right, you, you go in and rob a bank, like the old days of John Dillinger, right, and you get your money, and you go out, well, all of those bills have serial numbers on them. And assuming they didn't get a die pack into the bag that's died all the money and ruined it for you, um, if you spend a lot of that money in one place, well, then they know that you, you had the money. So what generally it needs to happen there is that money needs to be broken up into lots of pieces, parts, to where even as it starts to turn up, tracking it back becomes impossible. Um, so that would be one type of money laundering, and that's something that's illegal, and you know it should be illegal. It, you, you're stealing someone else's property. Um, then you know the the most common form of money laundering that, that they talk about today is with the drug trade. 
Now, we get into a whole gray area there because many of us think that this war on drugs is preposterous and we'd like to see just about all drug prohibition gotten rid of and, and the, the, the common sense reign. And if you want to destroy yourself, go ahead and we'll worry about it when you start messing with somebody else because we know that the laws against the drugs don't work and all. But at least it is a truly illegal activity, right? So... Uh, drug dealers make a bunch of money and they need to launder it. So that's another type of money laundering uh, scenario where you can see the legitimacy of it. But then, you know, there's a whole other level of that where what they might consider laundering is simply moving money in a way that they don't know about. And that's more what you're talking about. So it's my money. I came about it through no illegal activities. Maybe it's something they don't like, but it's nothing illegal. I haven't violated any laws. And now they want to know when I move my money, where it goes to, and why it goes there under the guise of finding these other monies. And, and, and that is a problem. But you said something that's not exactly true here. That, And I, I need people to understand this, okay? Bitcoin is not in of itself something where you can tell who got what from whom. Uh, on, on, the, on the most basic level, if two parties do a transaction in Bitcoin, you can tell that this address sent money to this address. That's auditable, but you don't know who owns those addresses. It takes a significant additional effort to try to figure that out. And by using multiple addresses, you can make it all but impossible. And then you mentioned ZeroCoin uh, as though it's something different. ZeroCoin is actually a Bitcoin protocol. It's actually just designed to act as an intermediary. So that actually shows that Bitcoin was built with the intention to make transactions uh, anonymous if you wanted to make them anonymous. Okay, what Bitcoin is, for people to truly understand this, it's electronic cash. Okay, and you and I can have a cash transaction. I can give you 500 $100 bills. We could enter them into a public journal, including recording the serial number of those bills, and make that transaction as public as we want to. Or I can hand you your 500 bucks. You can hand me whatever I wanted in return, and we can go our separate ways. And that transaction is as anonymous as either of us wish for it to be. Okay? So that's what Bitcoin really is. So my view is that the government has enough dadgone information on people, but it will never, it will never settle for not having more every opportunity that it gets, okay? And it's because they want to control you. It, 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 is, it is directly understandable in this fact. People that bank in certain ways, that move money in certain ways, in certain amounts that the government deems as suspicious, with no, no charges... The government will then seize their money. So they call it structuring. You've transferred money in certain amounts, a certain frequency of time that we find suspicious, so we're just going to grab and hold your money. Um, that's a perfect example of them tracking what they don't need to be tracking. Your money moving from one of your accounts to another account should be nobody's business at all. You know, and there's, well, there's a reporting requirement if it's over $10,000. Why? Why? If it's my account to my account, it shouldn't even... That's ridiculous in itself that that exists. Okay, if it's between two parties, there could be tax implications. 
I get that. I don't agree with income tax. I think it's it's wrong. I think it. I think that an income tax on individuals is unconstitutional. But it doesn't matter that it's unconstitutional because we have you know a hundred plus years of precedent that it's been made acceptable in the United States and it will be enforced. And whether you believe it's unconstitutional or not doesn't change the fact that they will enforce it. So we are stuck with a de facto income tax. So under that system, if if Party A transfers $10,000 or more to Party B, there certainly could be tax implications there. But I should be able to transfer money from a checking account to a savings account. Ain't nobody's business but my own. And when you live in a society where that's not the case anymore, you, the the illusion that you live under a society of liberty is nothing but an illusion. That's where we're at. Um, but make no mistake about it, they don't just want to be able to track money. They want to be able to track the transfer of any and all property. They want to know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, how often you're talking to them, where your car goes, how long your car's there. Um, we're moving into a world, everybody talks about 1984, but we're moving into a world so much more draconian So much more dystopian than 1984. George Orwell couldn't really conceive of the level of tracking and technology that we have today. If you think about 1984, the novel and the movie, there's some differences, there always are, but when you really think about the core there, you know, there were ways to just simply not be seen for a while in 1984. The, 1984 was about television sets telling you what to do and not being able to turn them off. Um, the concept that you could be tracked at the level that we can track all activity and behavior today, it was alluded to in 1984. It's what he was talking about, but he couldn't get it right because the technology was so dramatically beyond what you could conceive of when first authored, that we are now at a point that, that the totalitarian could only dream of this day. And what are we going to do about it? Well, you know what we're going to do about it right now? Nothing. Right now we're not going to do anything about it because the people of this country are too busy worried about how much fat is in Kim Kardashian's ass or whether some lawmaker in Montana has submitted uh, an idea that we should pass a law against yoga pants that don't have a snowball's chance in the hell of happening, than they are about the fact that the NSA records your phone calls. That the United States government has people involved in social media activity just to track what you're doing and figure out who you are. The, the, the average person doesn't care. It's not what they're worried about. They're worried about pop culture, or they're worried about the irrelevant actions of idiotic politicians. You know, they're worried about whether or not what's his name, Brian Williams, lied about being in a helicopter, and then they turn around and go out and buy a book by a Navy SEAL who lied multiple times about his role in government, and then they want to raise the flag in support of that person. And I'm not here to bash Chris Kyle or not. I'm just saying, like, this is the the, the society we live in. And they're worried about that, or they're worried about whether or not Chris Kyle lied, but they're not worried about, you know, all of the lies the government has told us up till now. They're not worried about the fact that the government is directly responsible for the formation of ISIS. That they're using weapons that came from the U.S. government and U.S. money. They don't care about it. 
I know some of you do, and you're screaming at me right now. I care, Jack. I care. I want to do something. But the, the, the concept in this nation is it takes a significant number of people that give a shit to get something done, to care. And most of them don't. So what can we do? Well, we could roll heads. We could actually make elections meaningful. We could do that. This, this country doesn't need an armed revolution to have a revolution. We could have a revolution the next election, but we won't. There's a little emblem sticker going around Facebook right now that actually makes sense. It looks like the I voted sticker, but it, or I voted badge. I voted, right? I'm proud of myself. I voted. But it, what it says is I farted and it made more of a difference. A little flag on it. Until this nation has been pushed enough to desire freedom again, and, and hopefully at that point it's still possible to regain, we're not going to do anything. I know that sounds defeatist, but it's, it's, it's not. It's an acknowledgement of the facts. Because this is the reality that most of us in the liberty movement do not want to admit. The average person wants big government. They want it. They desire it. I defy you to go any major metropolitan area and start talking to people on the street with a camera and ask them about whether or not they love big government. They'll, they'll tell you, oh no, I was, it's horrible. But start asking them what we should cut and see how quickly they want to turn around and cut your throat. Start suggesting that people be able to do what they want with their own property and watch how quickly you see people say, oh no, I don't want that. You live in a society that's become weak. So what we're going to do about it directly is absolutely nothing. So what we have to do is we have to do something about it indirectly. And those are through our own lives and our choices and the way we live. And to set an example for what living responsibly, independently, and with personal liberty looks like, so at least people know how to recognize it when they see it. And I think that it's important that we have these little victories throughout the country, because then people do wake up. When Colorado legalizes marijuana and the whole world was going to end and it doesn't, people start to say, do we really need that here? That's just one example. But we are so far away from being a free people anymore We don't really deserve the right. We don't deserve the right to refer to ourselves as the land of the free anymore. We don't. We absolutely don't. And I think the only way we can earn that right as individuals is to decide for ourselves, I will be free. And when we say land of the free then, we mean others like us who have chosen the same thing. Because... The way the American people are behaving right now, they've chosen fear. They've chosen safety over liberty. They've chosen control. And they've chosen big government. And it's up to the remnant who know what freedom is to live in freedom in spite of that. That's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do anyway, and hopefully I can help you do that too. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. <clears throat> I have two related questions. Um, the first one is, with what perspective should someone look at um, getting energy uh, efficient or 
um, energy independent with their home. Um, it seems to me in broad terms that it's pretty likely that the government would always be more likely to provide more incentives to use alternative energy um, in the future as opposed to today. So it's hard for me to justify not putting it off um, in the short to medium term. And the second question is in relation to uh, geothermal energy specifically, um, do you have an opinion or knowledge on how beneficial that can be um, in relation to other energy sources for a particular home? Um, I know it depends on the particular home, but um, I'm interested in geothermal particularly as an alternative energy. And um, I'm not sure that scaling it down to the level of an individual home, um, how that works or the economics behind it or um, whatnot. Although it does seem in my state at least, which is North Carolina, there are some significant tax incentives um, and also at the federal level. Um, thank you. Bye. Alternative energy is the perfect example that whatever government puts its hand on, it, it pretty much screws up. So the advocates of these, and I, before I get into this, I'm not saying if you, if you choose to do something with solar or wind or geothermal or anything, and there's a tax incentive, I'm not saying not to take it. Of course you take it. It's your money. Take it back. Get as much money back from the people who stole it from you as possible. Okay? That's, that just should go without saying, but I have to say it because of what I'm about to say now. The advocates of this type of thing will say, well, they make it more affordable. No, they don't. No, they don't. They actually de-incentivize the manufacturers of these components and products and the people that develop them to lean out their inefficiencies and make them more affordable. Why in the hell would I try to cut the cost of the production of, let's say, a solar hot water system, if I know that the people that I'm selling it to can get a couple thousand dollars from the government when they buy it from me? How de-incentivized am I on that? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not even going to address geothermal separately here. I'm not going to break it down to solar, wind, geothermal. I'm going to tell you how you have to look at this. What you do... In the end, whether you realize it's what you're doing or not, when you're making any of these decisions is you get a price, how much is it going to cost me, and then you look at the time to repayment based on the energy rates where you live, and then the icing on the cake is how much independence does it give me. And you also have to factor into it the lifetime of the system. If a system takes 10 years to pay itself off, but only is going to last 20 years, it's nowhere near as powerful of a thing as if it takes 10 years to pay itself off but has a 30-year life expectancy. And then when it comes to energy independence, you have to ask yourself, does it actually do this? So if I put in a grid-tied solar system that doesn't have battery backup, it doesn't have inverters, it just ties to the grid, even if it's big enough to give me 100% of my energy, there's a financial independence there, but it's not energy independence. Because if the grid goes down, I don't have power anyway. If I put a geothermal system in that cuts the cost of heating and cooling my home, but I'm still dependent on the electrical grid to be able to use the, the advantages of geothermal, then I'm still dependent on the electrical grid because it doesn't do anything for me when that power's not there. I might need less of it, 
And if I set up things like backup generators and stuff, I might have more self-reliance if the power goes off. Self-sufficient. I don't need you. Self-reliant. I can deal without you for a time. Self-sufficiency we measure in percentages. Self-reliance we measure in time. So if I produce 50% of my own food, food-wise I'm 50% self-sufficient. If I have two months worth of food stored, I have two months of self-reliance. So a lot of these energy efficiencies, alternative energy strategies and things like that that leave you dependent upon the grid, but decrease how much you take. If you compensate for loss of the grid through another means, they increase your duration of self-reliance. Right? These are the things that you factor in. It don't matter what it is. Right? The only way you have self-sufficiency, true self-sufficiency, is off-grid. Or the ability to go off-grid. So does what still works when the grid goes down and will work pretty much in perpetuity? Now, I know all systems have a life. So that's how you have to make this decision. So when you say, well, there's a tax incentive, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I, and that is irrelevant. Let's say the cost of a system you want to put in is $20,000. And let's say all the incentives and rebates and everything else are $5,000. I don't care. It's a $15,000 system now. In my decision-making process, I don't give a damn that $5,000 comes from tax incentives. I care in the end how much money does Jack have to put into this fifteen grand. Okay, what's my electric bill a month? Let's say my electric bill is $300 just to make this easy. And that's an aggregate average that it's $300. So my power bill is $3,600 a year. And let's say that the investment I'm going to make into this is going to cut my bill by two-thirds. Big cut. 66%. That's a home run in this world. It really is. It's not typical. So $15,000 system cuts my electric bill from $300 to $100. When I run the numbers, uh, it's at, at saving me $2,400 a year. That brings me to a position where uh, it takes me about six and a quarter years to pay the system back. So at, at, at year seven, It's like I'm putting $200 in my pocket every month. If I think I'm going to stay put, and if that system has a life expectancy of 20 years or greater, I'm probably making that investment. Don't care that $5,000 came from the government, or don't care the government gets out of it and the, the manufacturer gets the installed price down to $15,000. It's still a $15,000 price. Don't care if it's geothermal. Don't care if it's solar photovoltaic. Don't care if it's solar hot water. Don't care, don't care, don't care. Do not care infinity. I care about the economics involved in the payback period. That's what I care about. And the only way I start to factor in the whole... I am independent from the power grid is when that's true. When that's actually true. So I might be able to put in an earth contact structure, cut my heating and cooling to almost nothing, put a whole bunch of solar up on the roof, be able to run my TV when I want to run it on occasion, turn my computer on, do my show, and go off-grid altogether and live my life the way I want to. And I might even bring in, if it's cheap, a grid connection to give me extra power. But if that goes down, I really don't care. I've got enough to do the things I want to do every day. Now I'm making a decision with factoring in freedom, independence. Okay, 
Otherwise, it's purely an economic decision. But what about saving the earth? What about the polar bears and what? Okay, his. I don't care what you believe about all of that. Okay, you believe whatever you want. If you really think that New York City is going to be underwater in a hundred years or something stupid like that, then fine. Your house going to solar panels, if that's true, isn't going to change it. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen whether you put solar panels on your roof or not. But if everybody did, but everybody's not going to. If everybody jumped in the ocean, the level would go up. All right, but it's not going to happen. So we're not going to base our lives on that. So I hope that makes sense. It's purely an economic decision until such time as it actually enables grid independence. Or it enables some portion of grid independence. If your system that you're putting in, six, seven, eight year payback time, 20 year greater life expectancy, and you can continue to use it with no grid tie, even if you don't have all the power you have with the grid, but you can still have 20 to 30% of the energy production capacity, and you can access it, then that's, a, that's, that's more icing. That's a double-decker freaking burger, and it's a couple pieces of cheddar cheese and bacon on there. Yeah, that's good. That matters. These are the things you think about, though. You don't. You can't look at it, well, but I'll get $5,000 from the government. No, you don't get $5,000 from the government. It's an illusion. The government's not giving you money. In the most basic format, what the government's doing is stealing somebody else's money to give it to you. But since they've already stole your money, you can look at it as you're getting your money back. But that's not even really what it is. The government's basically artificially inflating the price of the product. Do you want to see solar, wind, geothermal, all of that shit get really affordable really fast? Get the government 100% out of it. To incentivize it, Here's how I'd incentivize it. If I were the United States government and I legitimately wanted to incentivize the production of alternative energy, what I would do is say, for the next 20 years, any product that has a, a seven-year or less return on investment that at that point produces energy in surplus, and this would include what energy was required to manufacture it, and how much it cost to the customer to buy it, based on average electricity rates. So this thing goes to what the, uh, the environmentalists would call carbon neutral in seven years, and is financially positive in seven years or less. Every dime you make on that product is tax-free. You can keep all the money. You have no income tax whatsoever on it. There's no, and if you're the, and, and, and all your employees that are involved with the manufacturing, distribution, installation of those products, all of their salaries are 100% tax free. Even under our current system that I don't like, yeah, you got to do your social security, but you're, you have no income tax. You can hire a guy in a truck to go out and put those things up on people's roof, and if he makes 100 grand this year, he pays zero income tax. He doesn't get earned income, minimum credit thing, money back for nothing, but he just has a zero tax bill. And the company has a zero tax bill. Think about that. Now I'm incentivizing productivity. Now I'm incentivizing profit. What happens in the year 11? You go to the same, the exact same tax schedule everybody else has. 
Now, if it was up to me, you know, I because I know people, we should have income tax. I know, I know. I'm being a realist, but if you actually wanted to make alternative energy affordable, just don't tax it. Don't tax it at all. Make it an attractive business to go into, to develop, to, to, to lean out efficiency. Because you know what companies are going to do then? They're going to say, how can we make as much money as possible doing this? We can make a shitload of money. Now, if you invest in it, it's not no longer you know subject to capital gains. I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that because then you bring the Wall Street firms in and it, that's all part of the government cabal anyway and they're going to buy regulations and legislations and all types of things. But if you just said that, anybody, anywhere that wants to start up a company installing, manufacturing, delivering, enabling alternative energy, seven years to carbon neutral, seven years to pay back to the, to the customer and you keep all the money for ten years. That's how you fix it. We'll never do it. Let's take another call. Hi, I have a question for Jack. This is Lynn. What's the best method to start permaculture farming in a drought-stricken area that has high heat in the summer and high winds all the time? I'm moving back to the plains of southwest Kansas the middle of May, and I want to build a food forest and raise ducks for eggs and have the typical annual vegetable garden for canning and for shearing. I've been thinking berms and swells and hoogle mounds. What do you think, Jack? I'd really be interested in knowing. Thanks for everything you do. Love the show, including the rants. Bye. Uh, This is a big it depends. I mean, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on, okay, you've given me Kansas. If I pull Kansas up on Google Earth... I can almost draw a line dead through the middle of it, and it's really green to the east and really brown to the west. Uh, if I pull up annual precipitation for Kansas, I run anywhere from 24 inches of rain per year to 44 inches of rain per year. Those are very, very different things. The next thing will be, well, how big is the property? And then the next thing will be, well, what's your budget? You say you're going to do hugo culture or other trees there that need to cut, get cut down anyway? Or are you going to haul trees? See, if you're hauling trees in to do hugo culture, you probably shouldn't be doing hugo culture. You, you probably shouldn't. It probably doesn't make sense. Um, if it's a big property, then I want to get in there and I want to do either contour based swale or contour based swale, uh, slightly off contour into a key line system. In fact, I'm going to bet in this environment, key line's going to be the way to go. If it's sufficiently large enough of a property, and you have the budget and the equipment to do that. Okay. Um, if this is an acre, then I want to irrigate it. I mean, that, that, that's the easy answer. I want to irrigate it, I want to mulch it, and I want to start building wind block, and I want to do good, solid permaculture design. I want to build up as much mulch as possible, as fast as possible, But I want to spearhead it with irrigation. I might get to a point where I'm doing very little irrigation in three to four years. But to establish it, I want to put irrigation in. Um, I still probably want to do some swale-based design and, and what have you. I want to put ponds in. And I don't want to put in you know great big dams, even if this is a big property. In a, in a climate like this, I want little pocket ponds. I want them to, to hold water, yet I want them to seep a little bit of water gently into the soil. I want to rehydrate the landscape by holding water there. When I get snow melt in the spring, I want that water trapped. 
I want if I'm putting in berms, I'm doing it in some level for wind blocking. I want to determine where are my major. You know, it's windy all the time. Okay, yeah, but I bet you there's two primary different winds. I bet there's a winter wind that blows primarily from one direction, and there's a summer wind that blows primarily from the other. And I want to go ahead and I want to create systems that enable blocking that. And I can probably block my summer winds a lot more with things like deciduous hedgerows, but I probably need more of embankments to block my winter winds because at that point the trees don't have their leaves and they're going to be less effective. I probably need to stack those functions. I mean, you're, you're asking me how do I do something that's very difficult without telling me what I'm working with. Um, but it's not really difficult. It's difficult in the mind, but it's not difficult in the execution. But this is the thing that people don't understand about permaculture. In, in general, I find people don't understand about permaculture design. Of, uh, and I'm talking not the high-level principles applied to anything from a business to a bank, but when it comes to agriculture and land management. The land is the the marble that becomes the statue that the sculptor says it was already there, I just exposed it. The land tells you what to do. When you look at the contours in the land, you look at the catchment leading in, you look at the the solar aspect ratios of the property, you look at the soil types, you look at the existing vegetation, you look at what grows there natively, you look at what did grow there natively 50 years ago before somebody screwed it up. You look at the weed types, you, you, you see that there's deep tap-rooted leaves. I know i got compacted soil. If i got fine hair-netted hair weeds, that means i got loose uh, soil that's too loose and the weeds are trying to hold together. If I've got great big cracks in the ground, then I know that I've got, yes, a drought, but I've also got a certain soil type that even does that. And, and you have to actually look at a property and say, what does this land tell me about itself? How is it shaped? Where does the energy flow on it? And then it's a matter of determining, okay, this wind energy is a negative force for this goal. Therefore, I have to mitigate it. And what I mitigate it with is highly dependent on what's available. Might I put a great big berm in along a property line to mitigate wind? Sure. Is that going to be a hoogle mound? Is there readily available material that needs, like, am I going to cut trees that shouldn't be cut to make a hoogle bed? No, not happening. Right? Am I going to get a logging truck to bring me a bunch of wood to make a hoogle mound? No. Am I going to truck in a whole bunch of dirt? No. If I can't use what's there, I have to have a really compelling reason to do it. So those are the things you have to think about. But, but your key in dry lands is key line. We're going to determine a key point. Where does the land go from concave to convex? Where is that... That, that perfect point. And then we want to spread the water from the valley to the ridges. We can do that on an acre, maybe, usually, right? It, it starts to get more interesting five, six acres. So, and then we have to look at how do we infiltrate the water? How do we hold the water? How do we allow the water to seep into the system? You do that, and you can make almost anything work. So, and then Kansas, I know you say it gets hot, and it does. But 
I'm actually more concerned about cold in Kansas than heat. Especially with you know perennial production, I can get anything established, but I've got to look at when I put perennials in. What's my last frost date? When do these things go to bud? I don't want you know a couple hundred dollars worth of trees put in, and two years later I find out well they all go to bud so early in the first warm spring day. Then when that late frost that always comes here comes in, it knocks it all off. We get no production. So you have to look at where you're at, what grows there already, and what are the domestic mimics of that that'll produce for you. Ducks are a great choice for this environment because you're going to put ponds in. If you got an acre, I'm going to put two or three little ponds in at least, at least. You know, if you got a half of an acre, I'm going to sheet mulch it and I'm going to irrigate it, and then I'm going to design whatever I want. I might think about footpath swales and stuff like that to soak the water in, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna mulch it and irrigate it. You get three, four, or five acres. We got to start looking at key line swales, ponds, that type of thing. So if you have specifics that you want to call back with, you know maybe we can address those. But that big high picture, that's what you're dealing with, and that's all of you that are like, but my property is no, it's it's I'm gonna give you the same answer. It's always those things. But I get a lot of rain. Okay, great. Yay, good for you. Well, I get too much rain. It gets wet here. Move the water. We use key line. Right now, for the client in Arkansas, we're developing a key line system in conjunction with Mark Shepard because the fields get too wet in the winter. So by spreading the water out to the ridges, out of the valleys, we take care of the problem of too much water. And by putting in pocket ponds to hold the water instead of it all sitting down in that field, we solve the problem. We go into a dry environment, we do the exact same thing, and we prevent the ridge lines from drying out. Anyway, hopefully that helps you. Just know it can be done. That's the big thing. Get a firm grasp and understanding of permaculture design. Don't take this the wrong way, but your question sounds like if you don't, you're going to end up with a bunch of disjointed permaculture elements instead of an integrated permaculture system. When people say, well, I'm going to do hugel mounds and swales. Okay, why? Maybe you need one or the other. Maybe you need some here and some other things there. But when you just start grabbing elements, usually you don't have a firm understanding of how those elements interconnect and interact, where the edges are between them. So, I mean, it is a great idea for anybody that really is serious about this to take a permaculture design course, whether it's ours whether it's somebody else's, whether you travel and go on site. Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture, his is great. Jeff's online course is great. I think our online course is really good. Ben Falk does a great course up in, in New England. I mean, there are places to go learn this stuff. And I know some people think, like, our design course is 750 bucks now that it's open to the general public again. And, well, that's a lot of money. Or Jeff's course is like grand. And a lot of on-site courses are like $800 to $1,200. And it's expensive. What do you think it costs to develop an acre, to fully develop an acre? I mean, Nick Ferguson was just on the plant propagation course. And plantings alone, if you full blow out an acre, you're like at $20,000 in plantings. What's it worth to ensure that money's well spent? How much time does it take? How long do you wait for the elements to develop? What does it cost to rent an excavator, even if you do the work yourself, for a week? What does an, an excavator with an operator cost you for a week, or a dozer with an operator cost you for a week? 
understanding the interrelational elements of the design can save you tens or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on the side of a project over the years. PDCs are cheap when it really comes down to it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dustin from Tennessee um, and PJP and also on Zello. And uh, I had a couple questions for Stephen Harris uh, that came out of conversations on Zello today. Uh, first question is uh, someone brought up the topic of storing gasoline and uh, how the gas with ethanol in it does not store as well. Um, I don't think that that's true, but I wanted Stephen's uh, take on it. Um, due to uh, ethanol attracting water and uh, how that interacts with the gasoline. Uh, second question for Stephen was uh, uh, during another of our conversations, uh, one of the members on Zillow, Leo Smike, had a car battery uh, explode in the background of one of his transmissions. Um, he had the battery on a maintainer a three-stage uh, smart charger by Stanley, and uh, apparently something went wrong with the charger and and uh, boiled all the electrolyte off, which he had checked about a week prior. Um, and uh, so we were wondering uh, how to prevent that and uh, how that even happens in the first place. Uh, thanks for all that you do. All right, I'm going to kick that one over to Steve Harris, and uh, here we go. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Oh, Lord. This is why some people can think I'm being nasty. And I'm not being nasty. I am just, as one person put it, desperately trying to get you to understand. To understand a difficult question with a difficult answer that's not easily explained. And even though I answer it, some people just don't listen. So I'm trying to get you to listen to me and get my answer through the first time. So I want to make myself clear. Stop the witch hunt on ethanol. What's a witch hunt? My child got sick. It must be the witch's fault that's in the village. My cow died. It must be the witch's fault. My eight-year-old ATV won't run. It must be the ethanol. My chainsaw won't start. It must be the ethanol. Stop the witch hunt. Now, part of the issue with ethanol and gasoline does it harm your gaskets or rings or other seals? You drink it. You put it down your throat. It goes into your stomach. Some of you even drink it straight or on the rocks with ice. If it's not tearing a hole in your esophagus and ripping out your stomach, do you really think it's doing harm? to a very inert substance like a gasket or a seal, a seal or a gasket that's designed to be in an, in an environment of benzene, which is the chief ingredient, I can't speak, <laughs> look what you guys are doing to me, which is the chief ingredient in gasoline. And that would tear a hole in you if you drank it. 
So the answer is no, it does not. Now, about this water and ethanol and gasoline thing. One, there is only 10% ethanol at gasoline at the time of this recording, despite legislation trying to make it 15%. Yes, pure ethanol, pure ethanol, 200 proof, 100%, does attract water, but only when it's 100% ethanol to about where it's about 98% ethanol. It's not very hydroscopic or what we call water-loving. How do I know this? I have a complete setup I sell for making fuel ethanol, and that is ethanol that's 198 proof or higher that you can mix with gasoline. I'm the only person in the world that shows you how to take ethanol with 5% water left in it from distillation and get rid of the last 4% with something that's called a molecular sieve, which is nothing more than precision ceramic-type beads that have three angstrom holes in them to absorb the water and leave the alcohol behind. The water molecule is smaller than the ethanol molecule, so it goes into the three angstrom hole, and the ethanol can't get in. So if I know how to remove water from ethanol, I know about the addition to it. If you want to know more about this, it's at imakemygas.com. In some very, very rare situations, a small portion of ethanol can absorb enough water from the atmosphere into the gasoline mixture that it can get what's called separation. You'll have ethanol and a water mixture floating on top of the gasoline. The ethanol and water are dissolved in each other, and it's sitting on top of the gasoline. Now, what is the solution to this? You know that stuff you used to pour into your gas tank called uh, gasoline heat or driveway heat or other stuff like that? Back when you we had pure gasoline, this took care of any moisture that condensated in your gasoline tank on a very cold winter. So on cold days, you would get water and you, through atmospheric air, you would get air into the gas tank, and then on a very cold night, the, wa the water in the air would condense on top of the gasoline, and thus it would go to the, it go to the bottom because water is heavier than gasoline, and it would get sucked into your fuel system, and your car would be spurting water. Well, you would put an additive into your fuel to get rid of the water, to absorb it into the gasoline. Do you know what that additive is? Pure ethanol alcohol. Yes, ethanol dissolves water into gasoline, so you have a homogeneous mixture. That means it's all the same. It's not separated. It's all one liquid. And it can go through the fuel system and be burned in the engine, and the engine and the fuel system does not care one damn bit if there's a little bit of water dissolved into the ethanol that is dissolved into the gasoline as a homogeneous mixture. So, no, storing gasoline with ethanol in it, and again, I'm not being nasty, I'm just being passionate, okay? So, storing gasoline with ethanol in it is not worse than storing regular gasoline, because if you listen to my fuel and fuel storage class that I did with Jack, at steven1234.com, 
then you'd have known that you are keeping your gasoline stored in airtight containers. Airtight means that they are also watertight containers, so no atmospheric moisture is available to go into the mixture, even if it was going to, and then it would be only 99.99% of the problem of the time. It would never be a problem. So we're taking a very rare incident and totally exploding and blowing it up. And you're storing your gas better. Plus, here it is. Do you want to store pure gasoline or E10? Ethanol gasoline. You don't have a damn choice. There is hardly anything available to you but E10 gasoline with the alcohol in it. Pure gasoline, which is called E0, <laughs> E0 meaning no ethanol, it's just not available. And you have to store the E10. It's all you got. And it will work fine. Don't forget to add your PRI-G to it once a year, and that's at solar1234.com. Okay. Now about this battery exploding bit. Jack, you got to give me a few more minutes because this is kind of like a two-part question. I'm calling bullshit on what you were told, what someone else told you. His battery never exploded. Do you know the only way you're going to get a battery to explode? I'll tell you. There is some hydrogen and oxygen made in the charging of a battery, and it's a very small amount, but it does build up in the battery, and then it leaves through the vents or cracks in the battery caps. If and only if there is a spark, I mean a sparking spark from putting on the kind of electrodes on and you're making contact and breaking it, and the spark is one millimeter, one millimeter away from the vent, and I mean one millimeter, Will there be enough of a concentration of hydrogen oxygen to get ignited for it to go and ignite the hydrogen under the caps and for it to blow the battery? The second that hydrogen is more than one millimeter away from the battery cap, it's gone. It's leaving the battery, the room, the house, and going outside and trying to dilute itself across the entire planet. Oops, crap. Okay, and you know what happened? I just got so passionate about this not happening that I just spilt my Pepsi with my moving hand, and it went all over my Samsung uh, phone, and it went all over a special notebook of mine that I keep special notes in that I don't want Pepsi ruining. And so enough of this, okay? It didn't happen. It's not going to happen. And I spent too much time on this question already, so I'm not even going to finish my notes. I do have something very nice for you. I have a free copy of the book, Surviving the Blackout of 2003, just for you TSP people. I wrote this book. I went through the blackout, which affected 50 million people from Michigan to New York in 2003. And if you go to Stephen1234.com, and you wait for about 45 seconds, you'll get a pop-up that will pop up offering you a free copy of the book. So you got to be a tsp -er and you got to know to wait 45 seconds, and it will pop up for you. So go to Stephen1234.com, pick up your free copy of Surviving a Blackout 2003. I have a mess to clean up here. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling you, asking you to call in some more questions, but not aggravating ones.
And I'm not being nasty. I'm just being passionate. And thank you very much for listening to me, your time and attention. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Hey, Jack, this is Chris from New Jersey. Uh, obviously, New Jersey isn't really that great, so I'm trying to get out. I know you still live in Pennsylvania, so I was wondering what your thoughts were, um, Pennsylvania versus Virginia. Pennsylvania seems to be pretty good from the research that I'm doing, but I see um, in some of my research that they're really strict on homeschooling, which is going to be... Uh, that's important for me in the future in the next couple of years. So I was just wondering, based on the information you had, pros and cons of Pennsylvania versus something else in the area like Virginia or maybe Maryland or something. Thanks for your help. Bye. Uh, I, I'm really not qualified to answer that question for you at this point. I lived in Pennsylvania uh, growing up in the, in the 80s. And then I spent three years up there in, in the early 2000s. And, and this is my observation from that. The Pennsylvania I remembered as a, as a child was a different place 15 years later when I went back as an adult. Um, I remember growing up with men that were men from the World War II generation and, and some of the guys, I guess, that are still around from the Korean War and the Vietnam generation. I remember uh, the, the concept of something like gun control in Pennsylvania was just preposterous and uh, hard work ethic. And, and I, This pains me to say this, but I feel like that state just gave up. And swung to a socialist-minded state with a gimme, 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 and every second person in line at a grocery store was whipping out a food stamp card. And that was 10 years ago. And from talking to my father, it's only gotten worse. And I have to say that I even hear the sentiment echoed in my father's words now. And I don't know what's wrong with the place. And I can't imagine that Virginia is that much better. And it seems like the Northeast is in total has swung way toward the big government social handout mentality. I think there's still great people there. But I'd get the hell out of the whole damn area personally. Now, if I'm choosing between Jersey and Pennsylvania, that's pretty easy. I, I would take Pennsylvania. If I'm choosing between Virginia and, and, and Pennsylvania, I, I'm going to probably choose, well, I'm saying Virginia and Jersey, I'm going to probably choose Virginia. If I had to pick one of the three right now, my gut would be Southern Virginia. Southern Virginia. Because you're getting into the, the South now, and you, you're getting into some advantageous climate-wise and, and what have you. But I probably wouldn't want to live in any of those places anymore. And I know people are, they're from PA and all might be, uh, you know you're from Pennsylvania when you say PA, because no one else does that with any state anywhere. No one says I'm from FL or TX, right? Or NY, right? The only, only people from Pennsylvania say from PA, right? Um, don't think I feel good about this. Don't think I want to slam a state that I grew up in. And I love some, I mean, the mountains, the, the eastern woods. The, the, the tradition of hunting and fishing, 
uh, even the bad things that have things about them that are unique, like the coal mining. I mean, the, the one thing you could say about Pennsylvania was the coal mining and the steel mills and all. Like they had this bad ending, but they they still bred this 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 tough inherent blue collar ethic. And and I just don't see it being as prevalent as it used to be. I'm not saying it's gone. But my, my real advice is get over to Walking to Freedom and ask people that live there. WalkingToFreedom.com is a forum I set up and just kind of let it do its own thing now. But, you know, people will tell you, what well, this is what Pennsylvania is like. This is what Virginia is like. I will say this. Forget Connecticut. I mean, you, you just, you're out of the frying pan into the fryer. You want to talk about a state that don't give a damn about its citizens, right? That taxes you into oblivion. In that area, I can tell you with a few exceptions, like raw milk, that just doesn't make sense for a state like West Virginia to have this, I'd tell you to look to West Virginia. I really would if you can, if you can make it work. But out of the Northeast is like, there's like, you know, New Hampshire. With the Free State Project and, and a lot of a libertarian mindset, a lot of freedom in New Hampshire. And then you like, if New Hampshire's a hot girl, you know, right? Um, Vermont's like her freckle-faced, not-so-bad-looking cousin, right? And don't if you got freckles, don't be offended by that. You, 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 it's kind of a joke, and there's actually more to the joke that I'm leaving out right now. But she's the kind of girl you don't mind hanging out with. Right, uh, but she's not the girl you want to bring to the dance. And, and, but she's okay, and that's how Vermont is a lot of in the totality of that. There's some really so far enough away from everybody. That even if there's something you're not supposed to do, nobody gives a damn if you do. But the rest of that whole place, I mean, New York, forget about it. New Jersey, forget about it. I mean, anybody that makes it a crime for me to transport my own weapon in my own vehicle, I don't want to live there. You know, I mean, because I'm not going to the place you think I need to be going to at the time you think I need to be going there. It is preposterous. You know, you could have a, a, a gun in your trunk, locked up, unloaded, and be a felon in New Jersey. Get the hell out of there. What the hell's wrong with the people that run that state that, that that makes sense in any way? What's wrong with the people that live there that they allow their government to do this? Come to Texas. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. Get to walkingtofreedom.com, but I'd get the hell out of Jersey. I, I, I would take either or over Jersey. And I was born there. <laughs> Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont. Uh, calling you, wondering what your opinions were on uh, creosote and uh, wood stoves to do uh, burning pine trees. Uh, I heard different subjects that it's okay, it's not okay. Uh, wondering what your thoughts were, if they actually do uh, increase the creosote buildup or not. All right. Thanks. Bye. Um, let's see. So all softwoods produce more creosote in your chimney and, and the inner workings of uh, uh, any kind of wood-burning system than hardwoods do. <clears throat> Wrong answer, myth. The reality is that creosote buildup tends to be worse from hardwoods than softwoods over the same period of time. The difference is that softwoods tend to burn a lot hotter um, because they burn a lot more uh, fast. They burn more rapidly. 
And they burn with a higher, hotter flame unless they're in a good controlled stove or a good controlled environment of some kind. So the mythology is that they cause uh, chimney fires because they produce more creosote. And and the reality is because they burn a lot higher and hotter of a flame, they're a lot more likely to ignite a chimney that's got an excessive buildup and needs to be cleaned and maintained and hasn't been properly. I, I invite you to consider places like Alaska, British Columbia, all throughout the Great North, where there's very few hardwood trees to begin with. What do those people burn in their stoves? Spruce. Number one firewood, in, in parts of Alaska anyway, in parts of British Columbia and Alberta, is spruce. Well, I don't know if you've taken a look at a spruce tree, but it's conifer, it's softwood. And there's nothing wrong with burning softwoods in your fireplace. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what you don't want to burn in there is cedar. Um, <laughs> there are a couple pieces of cedar fencing in to a fireplace one time, and rapidly, nothing bad happened, but I rapidly wished I didn't. Uh, it burns ridiculously hot and ridiculously fast. Um, so I'm just going to advise you against well-dried-out cedar. Uh, it's probably not a good thing to put into a wood stove or a fireplace, in my experience, especially thin pieces like fencing. Um, the biggest thing with any wood-burning anything is well-seasoned wood, dry well-cured wood. So you can definitely burn softwoods. Now, some softwoods just have a pretty low return for what all the work goes into it and all the volume. Uh, the, the softer, so a spruce is a pretty dense softwood. It's a hard softwood if there is such a thing, you know. It, it's, it's a lot different than a really cheap kind of white, you know, yellow pine from the southern pine plantations. They tend to And, and a young tree that's grown really fast and the cut is like a scrap tree might burn a lot quicker than a, a larger, more mature, true timber piece of firewood. But, you know, you look to the, the recommendations that come with whatever you're buying as to what to burn. But And it is the case that you'd be better off burning probably a mixture and using your softwoods as, as kindling. And you're going to get a lot better of a burn rate and a lot easier time of controlling hardwoods like alders and maples and oaks and uh, things like that. But people can and do burn uh, your softwoods all the time. And again, if you're in the great north, there ain't much else to burn. So again, what do you think they burn? The big thing, again, well-seasoned wood and proper maintenance of your wood stove, your chimney, etc. Um, if chimney cleaning... If you're not prepared to do it yourself, if it costs four times what it does, it would still be worth it not to burn your house down. I'll leave it with that. Let's take another. Actually, uh, I've got a, I've got two I'm going to play in a row for you here. One is a question for uh, Nick, Fer, uh, Nick Ferguson uh, on plant propagation. The other is a question for Steve Harris. Both of these questions came in as emails, so I'm just going to play them back to back, and I'll come back, and i got two more for you, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Nick calling in to answer Jeremy's email question about the misting system. And he emailed and said, The idea of the misting system is to keep the plants moist, so I wondered how well would a wicking bed work in place of a misting system? A wicking bed filled only with sand and no dirt would remain consistently moist. Can you offer your thoughts on this and how well it would work? Thanks, Jeremy. Um, 
Well, the idea of the misting system is not to keep the plants moist, but to keep the leaves moist. What you want to the the purpose of the misting system is to keep transpiration rates low. Um, we don't want those plants to be transpiring moisture at a greater rate than they can absorb it from their environment. So if we keep the leaves constantly damp, just wet, then what happens is that cuts down significantly on the transpiration rate. Um, it's not about keeping the root zone moist. We actually want to keep the root zone just damp and not really that wet, and that's the reason why we use sand or some well-drained medium. So we don't want that root zone really, really wet, but we do want the plant's leaves to be damp all the time so that they don't dry out and wilt. So um, if we were using regular potting soil and we were constantly hitting that with mist all the time, then that potting soil would go anaerobic, it would be too wet, and it would rot. So that's why we go with something like sand or perlite, you know, things like that. So a wicking bed filled with sand and no dirt would maybe remain a little bit moist, but it's not going to help with keeping those plants alive because they need moisture on their leaves. So sorry, Jeremy, that won't work. You need to go with a mist system if you're wanting to propagate softwood cuttings. Thanks, guys, for the questions. Keep them coming. Happy growing. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer a question. This one got emailed to me from Jack from a person. He wants to know, is all ethanol alcohol the same? Is there a difference in the way ethanol alcohol is made when using a distiller? Example, using a tabletop distiller, you can make nearly pure alcohol. Is this ethanol alcohol that's made from sugar, as in from my website, imakemygas.com, different than the alcohol that is made with grains such as Everclear, grain alcohol, which is made from corn or wheat or other starchy products? The answer is yes, it is all the same. All of the ethanol alcohol you are talking about is made by yeast-eaten sugar. In fact, all ethanol that you are going to drink is made from yeast-eating sugar. The thing is, corn is a starch, so is wheat. And Yeast can't eat corn. Despite all of the stuff you see on the Moonshiner show, ethanol is not made from corn. It's made from sugar. What you do is you take the enzymes from barley or from alpha amylase and glucoamylase, and you convert the corn or the wheat, the starch, into a sugar. Once it is converted into a sugar by the enzymes with time and temperature, then the yeast eat the sugar they fart CO2 and piss ethanol alcohol, C2H, C2H5OH. That is the molecule for ethanol alcohol. Now, alcohol can also be made by the hydration of ethylene. You can take methane, CH4, and steam and turn it into carbon monoxide and hydrogen at a high, at a high temp, and then that can then be synthesized into ethylene, C2H4, that is then can be hydrated with water at high temperature with the catalyst, and you get C2H5OH at 200 proof with no waters. That is the same ethanol as was made by yeast, C2H5OH. 
So whether you're synthesize it from ethylene or you have yeast do it for you biologically, it is the same molecule. This is how very pure, pure ethanol is made for perfumes. Now, something interesting. We have a lot of stranded natural gas in this country. That is natural gas coming from wells, not near a pipeline, not near a pipeline. When the industry finally figures out that you can take this free fuel that is flared natural gas and turn it into ethanol and can be hauled away in a tanker truck, we'll have an ethanol revolution starting in this country. So you can take the free fuel, ethanol that you're flaring, and turn it into alcohol that can go in your car or be mixed with gasoline. It's a pretty neat thing. And when you can finally take a semi-tractor trailer with this chemical process on it and pull it up to a natural gas field and uh, convert it and then haul away the ethanol without a pipeline, there's some money to be made there, I can tell you, you bet. Now, in case you're wondering, I have something interesting for you. What happens to GMO corn that is turned into alcohol? Do you now have GMO alcohol? The answer is no. Not only did I know this from the start, but I met a protein chemist from Pioneer, the agriculture division of DuPont, and he knows the hybrid people known to you as the GMO people. Cue the evil Darth Vader music now. He did some double-checking because even he was pretty sure of the answer, but we, being the good people we are, wanted to verify everything the best that we could. So it turns out even if the hybrid protein, the GMO, could survive the process, process uh, excuse me, could survive the process of being turned from a starch into a sugar, and then from, and then from the yeast eating the sugar and turning it into CO2 and ethanol, the GMO hybrid could never survive the temperature of the distillation. It would destroy the protein. And the kicker is, the proteins are not soluble in ethanol alcohol. So they could never even make it through the distillation, even if they did exist at that point. So GMO corn will never create GMO alcohol, and you will not be drinking a GMO. So and the point is, you can go to the store and buy Everclear, which is 190 proof ethanol alcohol for trading in your preparations. This is legal to do this. And when society fails and there's no rule of law, you can then take your 190 proof Everclear and dilute it to 80 proof ethanol with water and put it into water bottles and put three X's on it like a moonshine bottle and trade it off as vodka to those thirsty people who have more toilet paper than you do at the moment. I did all this research just so I could bring this answer to you on TSP because alcohol is one hell of a trading item in a disaster. If you want to make your own ethanol alcohol for either fuel or for illegal moonshine, I have a distiller that makes it about as easy as making coffee. It's at imakemygas.com. There is a 22-minute video at the top of the page that shows you every single step. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Council. Thanking you very much for calling in or emailing a question. I, I got all my great stuff with Jack at Stephen1234.com. Talk to you later. Hey, Jack. This is Josh from Mississippi. 
Um, question is, I have a decent-sized garden, and I've got a few beds scattered around the property. And anyway, my family and I are traveling for the entire summer for two or three months, so we don't plan on growing a lot. And I was going to ask your advice and see what would be the best way to kind of maintain and protect the areas, the beds and everything while I'm gone. Uh, should I cover them with tarps, maybe plant some cover crops? Uh, any advice you have would help. Thanks, man. Bye. Short, quick, easy one. Your best bet is to tarp it. Um, you can cover crop it. If you do, you need something that's going to get up fast and it's going to live for the duration of your absence. And it's, it needs to be an annual that's easily turned in. Maybe. Because the other option is you cover crop it. When you come back, you tarp it. You, you, you take a scythe to it. And you tarp it, as long as you're not wanting to plant it like, I'm going to come home on day, let's just call it day 80, and I want to plant it on day 81. That's going to be a mess. If you want to come home on day 80, and you want to plant it on day like 120 or 110, or I'd even say day 100, 20 days of the absence of light, you can let it go nuts, you can chop all of it down, and you can pretty much just kill everything there uh, through the use of just a tarp. The issue is what will survive that environment, especially for that short length of time, will be any seeds. So any annual weeds that have gone to seed during that time, and plenty of annual weed seeds will have blown in, got caught by all that cover crop, and fall down in there. And even if the time isn't right for them to germinate amongst all of that shade and all of that choking cover crop and whatever, when you tarp it and they don't die and there's a nice moist environment in there and then all of the competition is gone, those annual weeds are going to come up. So your, your, your surefire method is a tarp. If I were going to cover crop it, the one way you might pull this off is seed it without overseeding it and still be heavily seeded with clover, like a white Dutch clover or a white, uh, uh, what's the other one, New Zealand clover. Because it's a perennial and because it only gets a few inches high and because you can come back and you can cut it and because you can plant your vegetables right in it. You cut a little plug out, you put your vegetables straight in there and leave it as a ground cover, a permanent mulch, a permanent living mulch. Um, and you still, you're not there to check on, I mean, if you can get it established before you leave, fine. Um, and it, assuming you're in a climate where it'll live through the summer, fine. That's the other problem. If you're in a climate where you're going to require irrigation to keep it alive through the summer, when it doesn't get enough irrigation, it'll get sick, it'll die, it'll die back, it just will go dormant, and then the weeds will take over. So your surefire method is to tarp the hell out of it. What you might want to do is use the opportunity. Put down a great big layer, compost, great big layer, mulch, and then tarp it. Because you will have some really rich stuff going on when you get back. And inoculating it with some uh, some good fungal activity might be a good idea, too. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Rich. Uh, I live in PA, uh, not too far from where you grew up. Uh uh, relatively new listener, and I just wanted to get your opinion on how are 
how is it going to be possible to get more younger people, students in high school, to start attending more of your uh, vocational courses over the the status quo of, you know, going this, you know, finishing high school, going to college, you know, but not in a not in a in a technical standpoint, but in a more academic standpoint, but you know, continuing, you know, going on and taking the extra step of getting the the technical aspects taken care of as far as their education goes. Because I went to Votech and, you know, it, it's done great things for me. I've met a lot of people. It's what I currently do. Uh, just wanted to hear your opinion. Thanks. Uh, I, I think, in by and large, it's a self-correcting problem that it'll only take, you know, a recession or a depression and a, a bursting of a student loan bubble for enough kids to look around and realize that we're lying to them. That everybody that should go to college is a lie. That going to college guarantees you that you're going to have a good career is a lie. That you can't have a good career without college is a lie. That it's okay to take on all this debt to go to college is a lie that it'll be the best four years of your life that turns into six years of your life is a lie, that it'll prevent you from living at home when your parents, what it might actually cause you to live with your parents is a lie. I, I think that it's a matter of people looking at the landscape and seeing that we are not, this is not the economy of the 1950s. This is not the economy of the 1960s and 70s. This is not the economy of the 1980s and 90s. This world has changed, and our methodology and our thought process behind education has remained constant for over 100 years. And it's up to the students to break free of the lies of the parents, And because I don't think the parents can accept the fact that they're lying. I think most parents in their 30s, 40s, and 50s can't be honest with their children about education right now. They can't do it. It's impossible for them to do it. They're so bought into it, and they're so sure. But my kid has to go. But but it has to be for my child, and it's it's bullshit. I also think it's important to understand just because a school is a vocational school over a trade school doesn't mean that it might not be a ripoff either. That I know a lot of people have gotten you know associates in electronics degrees from uh, trade school type organizations can't get a job. They can't get a job, you know, or they end up with a job like uh, pulling cable or pulling wire or something like that and become like a journeyman electrician. There's nothing wrong with that, but they didn't have to go do that to get into that line of work. I think what we have to start doing is having an honest conversation about career opportunities. I think what we have to do is, and this is part, guys, my number one wish for what I leave behind when I'm not here anymore, is that I've taught people to critically think and to pick things apart and to not view issues as a totality when they should be viewed separately. So there's two issues here. One is education and the other is employment. And we have convinced ourselves that the two are inseparably linked. And they're not. We have to look at employment and career opportunity and entrepreneurship as one thing 
and education is the other. And then we see where they fit together. So if the career goal is to be a practicing attorney, well, you need a license to practice law. You have to pass a bar, and you need a good education in that line to, to do that. So my nephew, who, you know, it's not what I would choose for him to do, but he wants to be an attorney, and he's got academic scholarship opportunities and uh, athletic scholarship opportunities, is going to university for that purpose, and he's taking courses that, that are designed to fit well with later applying to law school and going to law school because he's thinking that far ahead. So that makes sense for him because we examine the career first and then we find the education that matches it. When you have people going to college to get a degree in whatever they can figure out to get a degree in, um, with no idea what they want to do, it, 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 it's it's intrinsically a bad practice. It just doesn't make sense. So it would be like, see, and people say, well, but no, it's because, well, see, you've been marketed to believe this. What if I told you that I wanted you to invest $80,000 to buy a house? You can buy a house for $80,000. That is a, a a good number for what people spend on a four-year education. Some spend quite a bit more, but buy an $80,000 house. I want you to buy an $80,000 house. And you say, okay, where is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, okay. But everybody knows that it's good to be a homeowner. All right. And, and, and statistically, people that own their own homes have better retirements than people that don't. Uh, okay, and statistically, people that own their own homes have better careers than people that don't, and they have more stability, and they're less likely to get divorced. There's a whole shitload of statistics that I can give you behind owning a house that are positive for owning a house. Equity buildup, tax advantages, all kinds of things. Overall general life stability, community involvement, even health that I can attribute to home ownership. And it's real. Okay, fine. So I want you to buy a house for $80,000. Well, what kind of house is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you. How many bedrooms does it have? We'll see. What's it worth? I don't know. Can you at least tell me what state it's in? No. I'm not so sure I want to buy this house anymore. Can I sell it? No, not really. Can I transfer it to someone else? Like, lease it? No, it's your house. Eventually you can sell it. Maybe. But why don't you go buy this house? Okay, when I buy the house, do I get to move into it? No. You buy it now and wait four years, then I'll tell you where it is. Okay, and then I can move into it. Oh, no. You have to go buy your own entry-level house first. In fact, you have to go rent an apartment for two months or two years, and then you can buy an entry-level house 
And then you can move up into the house that you've invested in. But I'll tell you where it is in four years. I'll tell you what it's worth in two years. It sounds preposterous. And there's people out there saying, that's not how a college education works. It is when you have no idea what you want to do with your life. Just get in and for your first two years, take the core courses anyway. Don't worry about it. Okay, so now I've spent $40,000 and I may never own the house. What if I hate the house? Well, you still get the house. You have to keep the house, but you're free to go buy another house. So the only way that we actually have this conversation with our young people and not lie out of our ever-loving asses is to discuss career opportunities as they exist with a high school diploma, as they exist with trade school, as they exist with self-directed learning, as they exist with the experiential knowledge gain, as they exist with trade schools, tech schools, non-traditional educational outlets. That's the only way we have this conversation and not lie to them anymore. Do you not understand, America, we are lying to our children, and we have been lying to our children for so long that most of you listening to me, your parents lied to you about education too. Lied. There's no other word for it. Not misled. Now, you can lie and believe you're telling the truth, and most parents that have have spread this message to their children have done so because the propaganda machine has sold it to you because it is a trillion-dollar industry. It's an unfathomable amount of money, and I know it's not a trillion dollars a year, but over the years... Over a decade, there, there, there's hundreds of billions of dollars flying around in this industry. And that, and I believe even a lot of people that are part of the propaganda machine believe their own bullshit with this. So you got to think about the policymakers that have been encouraging this behavior. Do not most of them have a degree? Don't you generally feel when you worked hard for something, you spent a lot of money on it, you have to justify it? At least in your subconscious? So I think the only way we can solve this problem is to just get into a point where we're being real and honest with our kids. And we have to stop the mantra of everyone should go to college. So it's not so much what we do, it's what we have to stop doing. And I mean, to make a, I don't care how you, you want to try to defend that position. I can just go out right now and start walking around downtown Fort Worth or downtown Dallas around the restaurant areas and just take you in there and just start talking to people that are working, you know, serving tables and bartending and going, do you have a degree? And I'll show you, you know, out of a dozen people, six with degrees at varying levels, from associates to bachelors to, you know, I'll find you, a pro- I bet you I can find you a bartender. On a Friday night, knocking down four to five hundred dollars a night in money in Dallas and Fort Worth, both cities, I can find at least one with a freaking master's degree. And when you ask him why are you attending bar, and he's going to tell you because none of the jobs that that hire me because of my degree pay me five hundred dollars on Friday night. And I'm not saying she's going to be a bartender, 
But I'm saying when the guy that has the degree is tending bar so he can pay his college loan back, maybe you shouldn't have went to college. So I think that we have to start looking at what is the future of economic opportunity in this country. Where are all the places that real growth opportunity and real rewarding careers lie? And I think that's another thing we have to come back to. One of the unintended consequences of the hard work, blue-collar attitude of that World War II generation, and even the baby boom generation, was that we have lost the belief that careers and jobs should be rewarding. And we've also sold ourselves on the idea of, well, you can either make a lot of money or you can have a rewarding, you know, lifestyle. You know, if you're going to teach, you're going to be broke, even though we have teachers in some states that make way more money than computer programmers and others. Right. I mean, there's a ridiculous amount of money made by some teachers in this country. And there's teachers that are barely above the poverty level in other states. It's, it's a very state by state thing. So we, but we have that belief that all, all teachers are heroes and all teachers are poor and all teachers have to spend their own money so their kids can have Kleenex, which is just one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever heard in my life. You know, I mean, how much Kleenex do kids need? And if you need Kleenex, bring your own damn Kleenex. It's just preposterous arguments we have come out of the education sector. So, you know, my belief, obviously, is I think the whole education sector needs to be torn from asunder. The whole thing needs just to be thrown out and rebuilt. But I think that's where the rebuilding comes from. Where are the opportunities for rewarding careers? And rewarding is not, ju not just money, and it's certainly not the absence of money. Trust me, if you work for $14,000 a year, unless you have some kind of lifestyle where you can save seven of the 14 and live on $7,000 a year and be really happy, you're going to be miserable as shit. right? So you have to be able to make enough money to provide a rewarding, a rewarding life. But where, where does that opportunity intersect with opportunities to feel like you're, you're making a difference, like your job matters? Most people in America don't feel that their, their careers mean anything. Recently, here's what I'll close up on today, because I don't know the answer, right? These are just my thoughts on what we have to start doing to be honest to find the answer. But recently, a, a long-term listener who sends a lot of great feedback says, Have you been through your midlife crisis yet? I feel like I'm having a midlife crisis. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I had my midlife crisis about 2008 when I snapped out uh, and, and, and started doing this show and, and walked away from what people considered a very rewarding career to do something I loved and not make as much money as I did, but I do all right. And I'm happy with it now. But I, what I said was that the, the reason that so many Americans have these midlife crises that we, we call them, especially men, is you look around and go, what the hell difference would it make if I just didn't show up at work? And you have this ego that makes you want, well, everything would fall apart without me. Well, it might even for a week or two, but you know what? They'd all figure it out. But what if it did? What if the whole company went to shit in Shanola because I didn't go to work anymore. 
Would it actually change the world in any way? Would anybody give a shit? Would my next door neighbor even care? And if he did, would he care for very long? And most people look at their career path, they look at their life, they look at their lifestyle, they look at all their interactions. You start to do what you call an edge analysis in permaculture, whether you know that's what it is or not. How do all these things interact? And you get to a point and you go, you know what? Wouldn't make a damn bit of difference in the world. No one really would give a shit. They'd say, what happened to him? He was great. And maybe once in a while, a couple of years later, somebody at the water cooler, hey, you remember Tom? Yeah, he was nuts, and he went off to the woods or something. I don't know, whatever happened. Hey, do you get the, you see the Steelers game on, 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 on Sunday? That's a pretty cool one. I mean, that's it. You'd be a footnote, maybe, once a year. And you start to say, well, okay, I'm miserable. I don't feel like I'm paid enough to make this work. If you're like most Americans, you're in this insane gerbil wheel of debt-income ratios. You, every time you got promoted, you moved into some better area or got into some country club or got involved in some shit that, that just like sucked up the extra income. You're saving for retirement, but you never feel your retirement's safe or secure. You watch people get freaking laid off from the company that says they're going to take care of you. There were good people. You have to do shit to people you don't want to do. You're not happy. You've worked your ass off to get where you are, and you wonder why the hell you did it. Of course we have midlife crises. Because we don't feel that what we do is important to anyone. That's what leads us there. It's not just that I, I don't feel that, you know, I'm not happy, and I don't make enough money, and I'm underappreciated. You know who has a lot less midlife crises than, than you know, than, than upscale professionals? Carpenters. Farmers. Dock workers that load a freaking truck. Do you know why? Because if nothing else, at the end of the day, they go, I planted a tree. I shipped food to somebody. There's a wall there now. Hey, that truck is full and it drove away the stuff I put on it. It's going somewhere. Someone's going to care. <laughs> Where the person that just entered numbers in a spreadsheet for the last 47 hours of the week and has eight more to go before the weekends with 51 hours and they're on a salary as if they work 40, goes, you know what, if I didn't enter them numbers... There'd be people pissed off and whatnot, but in the end, nothing would really change. If we're going to have our children solve this problem that we've created for them, we're going to start being honest about all of this. If you keep doing what you've always done, you'll get more of what you have. So before we just... Tell our kids, go to college and get good grades as a blanket statement. Maybe we should look around and go, do we really want more of what we have right now? Do we really want more people that can't think for themselves, that have been taught by the system what to think, how to feel, and what to do? Is that what we really want? Do we really want more people who are okay economically until the first time their job's eliminated or they get laid off or their company downsizes? Do we want more of that? Do we want more people that 
when they're told you'll be working till you're 65 to 70, nod their heads in collective agreement like a bunch of dumb cows. Do we want more of that? Do we want people that literally are cattle, and female cattle, by the way, because when the government milks them, For the entire best years of their life, they actually seem like they think it's okay. They even kind of enjoy it. Do we want more of that? Do we want more people who are intellectually intelligent but can't change a tire on a car? And I don't mean just a spare tire. I mean don't know how to take a tire off a car to a tire machine, crack a bead, break it down, pull the tire off, put it back on, blow it up with air, throw it on a balance, and understand why the hell you have to balance it anyway, slap a couple weights on it, stick it back on the car, and have the car back down the road. But, oh, they can do an analysis of an Excel spreadsheet. Do we want more of that? Do we really want more people who look down their nose at what we call blue-collar labor? Do we really want more people who say to the guy that spent some money to go to welding school that he's a loser when his job pays three times what the average person coming out of school with a four-year degree gets for their first job? Do we really want more of that? Do we really want more people that think it makes a difference to vote for politician A versus politician B when 90% of the elections were decided before you ever showed up. Do we really want more of that? Do we really want more people that tune in to speeches by the president and believe the words and don't judge the actions? Do we really want more of this? If you want to change this, if you want to convince our children that it's time for them to look at the world differently, then we have to. And they're looking to us to lead. The number one reason that kids go to college in America today isn't just because their parents tell them to, it's because their parents did. So since Dad did it, I should do it. Do we want more followers or do we want more leaders? Do we want more people developing solutions or more people looking for places to fill in spots inside institutions? What do we want more of? Do we want people that create things, that build things, that innovate things, that get to keep the fruits of their hard work? We talk about valuing hard work, but why do we value hard work right now? Because the society views you as a freaking door cell battery, just like the Matrix. Sure, they want you to go to school. That's great. That way you can create a huge energy debt for yourself, and you can go out and spin your wheels for 40 years of your life to pay it back through a system of extraction. Do we want more of this? How do we get our children and our young people to value alternative paths to a new economy, tell them this shit, be honest, stop lying. Stop lying to them. Go to go tour 10 different college campuses. Just walk around and look and say, do we want more of this? Or do we have enough of this? Look at the body count 
in these places. And ask yourself, where are all these people going to go do something with themselves in the next four or five years? What are they going to do? What jobs are they going to have? What jobs are going to be there for them based on the fact that they know who wrote a poem in 1612 in France? And stop lying. But before we can stop lying to them, we have to stop lying to ourselves. If your job has nothing to do with your degree, please admit it. Please admit that. If you enjoyed your college experience, I'll just ask you this. Would you have spent whatever amount of money you spent for four years of screwing off on an island instead? Would you be better off? You might be, you might not. I don't know, but be honest. Be honest. The best thing I ever did for myself, for my whole life, to get where I am today, I took a walk. Got out of the military and I took a three-month walk. I walked from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. That was better than college for me. I have to tell you that when you know I was running cabling crews and we had to get a, a cable uh, to a, uh, an office. And somebody said, I don't think we can do this. It didn't hold a lot of water with me. It's a freaking cable. And he's go from here to there. There's a way to get it done. Shut up. We're going to do it. And all of a sudden you're leading crews and you're a supervisor of people 20 years older than you. Because you have that attitude. It takes you a lot of places in life. We need to have that honest conversation. That the, the ethics and the morals and the principle of an individual coupled with common sense, have a lot more to do with their career trajectory than their educational pedigree. We have to be honest. And the reality is, there's only a certain segment of careers and a certain percentage of jobs that can capitalize on a four-year university-style degree. And at every single percentage point over that number of the population that engages in that type of an education is a surplus with no place to go. Instead of returning surplus, we're redistributing it. We're taking people with degrees in philosophy and management and marketing and we're having them do jobs like manage bookstores, 10 bar, and put shelving in houses. Wouldn't it be great if the guy that was building shelving and houses wanted to? He's probably right now combing through an Excel spreadsheet because he was one of the lucky ones that got one of the positions because he had the university path. And we have another guy that would actually like to be screwing around with that Excel spreadsheet putting shells in the house because we can't have an honest conversation about this because we've been so effectively marketed to that as soon as you challenge the belief you're against people you're against poor people uh, whatever it is I mean you're attacked you're crazy and even the people that will begin to engage in the conversation 
So many of them, Bo. Well, yeah, not everybody, but my kid, my kid's going. Asinine. Asinine. The solution to this problem is the solution to the vast majority of problems that we face in the world today. The solution is honesty. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.